3: it's hell on earth as hurricane ian slams into florida for anyone who watches the news natural catastrophes around the world seem to be becoming more intense not least in america the full extent of idalia's destruction is not yet known but what is clear is that mother nature had her way once again from hurricanes to wildfires.
2: In the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, the sprawling Oak Fire continues to rapidly spread across central California.
3: These weather-related events are affecting more people and causing more damage to homes and businesses.
4: What you see behind me, which is about 20 homes that were completely charred and hollowed out by this fire.
2: Once the water receded, business owners on this waterfront street got their first look at the destruction, the amount of surge evident by all of the debris left behind.
3: And the industry that's supposed to cover the cost and pay for customers to pick up the pieces is now saying it can't. A big announcement this holiday weekend from the country's biggest insurance companies. State Farm says effective today, it's no longer insuring new homes or businesses
0: in California.
3: Earlier this summer, three of America's biggest insurers announced they are no longer issuing new policies in California because of high wildfire risk and increased construction costs. Insurance brokers in the state are finding it nearly impossible to get homeowners insurance for their clients from the usual providers.
4: The last company that I had that would write a condo pulled out of the market last week. And, you know, so every day I come into the office waiting for another email from
3: a carrier saying you can no longer write business with us. It echoes a trend in Florida where at least 15 insurance firms have recently limited their business and seven others were declared insolvent. The scientific consensus is clear. Climate change is going to make these fires, storms, and floods worse. If nothing changes, the stricken parts of America, where many people choose to live, are on the path to becoming uninsurable. So if climate change continues unchecked, how can the insurance industry cope? And what lessons can the rest of the world learn from America's experience? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. And in today's show, why parts of America are becoming uninsurable and what can be done about it. First, we discuss
4: how it's not just climate change to blame for the massive losses insurance companies are facing.
2: It's certainly been demographics and the cost of construction. Those two dwarf the impacts of climate change that we've seen to date. Then we
3: hear how climate change is pushing underwriters to rethink the way they predict and calculate losses.
1: Reinsurers tend to look at the past to try to predict the future. And we're at a stage right now where we think the past is actually not a very good reflection of what the future can hold.
4: And finally, we ask, who's going to pay?
0: The choice is basically either people pay more based on their own risk or the federal government, a.k.a. the taxpayer, foots the bill. And that's not politically sustainable either.
3: Hey, Tom. Hey, Mike. Another week, another glaring absence from Alice as she continues her jaunt, her trip, her adventures in Japan. Have you been up to anything nearly as interesting as that this week?
4: Uh, Nothing quite as adventurous, although my wife and I have just acquired a cat this week. His name is Humphrey. He's a very cute ragdoll cat. I'm sure you'll be pleased to know that he's uh, settling into his new home very well. I've actually never had a pet before, but I'm enjoying it so far.
3: I've actually ended up somehow looking after some guppy fish because one of our neighbours was abandoning them. And so I now have that. That's in the past couple of weeks. I don't know how I feel about that, really. Nothing positive. If Humphrey ever wants a sort of (laughs) wild dinner, then he's (laughs) welcome to the guppy fish. But this week, more seriously, I've been wrapping my head around the world of insurance. And it's another week where we're covering a story with a pretty complex US angle, which Alice could well have helped us with. But there you go. Oh, ye of little faith, Mike.
4: I actually know the insurance business quite well, having done a secondment with a big insurer when I first moved to the UK a number of years ago now. So in case listeners didn't
3: think I was cool enough already, I'm an insurance guy too. I should say that our producer, Dan Asher, used to cover the insurance industry as a journalist. But I'm glad that we're in good hands with both of you, from management consultancy to insurance for you, Tom, the glittering corporate career so far, never ceases to amaze. Let's start with a sort of primer then on the insurance industry and how it works.
4: Sure. So I guess starting with the basics, insurers make money basically in two ways. The first is that when you pay a premium for home insurance or car insurance or insurance for your cat, the companies model the likelihood and possible size of of claims against that policy, and then they charge you an amount based on that, plus an amount for expenses, plus a margin that's called the operating profit or loss if they get the risk modeling wrong. And then the second way they make money is that they invest the premiums that they receive while they wait for claims to come in, although that's not usually the main focus for most insurers.
3: Right. And you don't have to be a modelling whiz to work out that climate change is generally bad news for insurance firms because it means more severe catastrophes that will cost them more money. But what are the sort of mechanisms underpinning this?
4: Yeah. So insurers underwrite risk by looking at historical data to work out how likely a disaster is based on what has previously happened. But as the climate changes, those disasters are going to become less predictable.
3: So the past is basically no longer as good a guide to what's going to happen in the future.
4: Yeah, it's certainly going to be less useful. The other thing to note is that insurers essentially use the same pot of money to underwrite different risks on the basis that those risks are unlikely to happen at the same time or are uncorrelated in the jargon. For example, if I crash my car in London, it doesn't make it any more or less likely that you'll crash your car in Singapore. I mean, maybe it's not the best example given neither of us have cars, but you get the point. Risk is kind of spread around. But climate change disrupts that. The same warming that makes extreme weather in Singapore more likely also makes wildfires in somewhere like California more likely. And that increases the chances that firms will have to pay out big claims, which, if they're bad enough, could send them bankrupt. And this has been a particularly acute problem in the US insurance market recently.
3: Well, as far as the US is concerned, one person who's been looking at all of this because there's been so many catastrophic events on her beat is Aaron Braun, the Economist's West Coast correspondent who is based in Los Angeles. And I wanted to get her on the show to hear what she had to say. Aaron, thank you very much for joining us.
0: It's great to be here.
3: So in the US, it would appear that climate change related events are sort of playing havoc with the insurance market. How big of a problem is this at the moment?
0: I think to understand why America in particular is in such a bad place, it's helpful to go back in time a little bit. In theory, insurance should send homeowners a risk signal. So people could expect their policy to be expensive if they live in a floodplain or a coast or a forest, the banks of the Mississippi River, coastal Florida, or in California's Foothills. It would be cheaper in places less prone to storms or wind or fire. But that's not happening here. And that's not happening because regulators have historically restricted the amount that insurers are allowed to charge for coverage. So homeowners aren't seeing that risk signal. In Florida, lots of people want to live by the water. But in a hurricane prone state that is also threatened by sea level rise, There are very good reasons people shouldn't live by the water. Because regulators won't let insurers raise rates to a level that actually reflects risk, people don't get that warning. Demographic change has made this problem worse. Florida suffers more hurricanes than any other state, but it grew more than twice as fast as the country did over the last two decades or so. Texas is vulnerable to storms that form in the Gulf of Mexico, it grew even faster than Florida did. By 2015, the total value of insured property along the Gulf and Atlantic coasts had surpassed $13 trillion. And in California, where I live, we're seeing lots of people move from these big coastal cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco further inland to the wildland urban interface where fires are more common.
3: So more people living in places where the risks are higher and premiums, kept artificially low. It sounds like I'm sort of starting to understand the nature of the problem here. How has this translated into this crisis for insurers in the worst-hit parts of the U.S.?
0: Big insurance companies have started pulling out of certain parts of the country where it no longer makes sense for them to write policies. Florida is farthest down this road to uninsurability. The state has the most expensive home insurance in the country. It's more than three times the national average. So... You'd think that insurers would be, like, rubbing their hands together, drooling over these juicy profits, but they can't get out of the state fast enough. Scores of firms are leaving. Other firms have been declared insolvent because they couldn't cover these huge claims that come from all the hurricanes hitting these really built-up areas. And part of the problem here is the National Flood Insurance Program – It's hard to find flood insurance on the private market in America because there is so much risk. Even back in the 1960s, it was uneconomic for firms to offer people flood coverage. So the feds began offering it to Americans on the cheap. And this program, more than any state rule, enabled the risky development that we've been talking about. California is sort of a different story. Consumer protections there are some of the strongest in the country. Insurance firms are only allowed to raise rates by a certain level each year, which means that there's a gap between what they're charging their customers and what the actuarially sound rate would be if they could factor in things like inflation and like rising reinsurance costs, which is basically insurance for insurance companies. And you've also got this kind of interesting dynamic where the insurance commissioner there is an elected official. So he's obviously super keen to keep his constituents happy and not give them sticker shock. So lately, especially this year, insurance firms have started limiting their business in California. They argue that these increasingly severe wildfires and these super suppressed rates make it basically impossible for them to provide coverage.
3: So There's a big problem here. Insurers are leaving these states. What do people do? Where do they go to get their coverage?
0: In states where this is a problem, officials have set up these state-backed insurers of last resort. Florida's program writes wind insurance. California's, which is called the FAIR plan, deals with fire. And so these plans are where Americans go when they're dropped by their private insurance. But because... These are the properties and the homeowners that are in the riskiest places in their states. They end up paying much more for less coverage in, in a lot of cases. There are so many people who can't find insurance now in Florida that the insurer of last resort there has the biggest market share in the state, and it's currently insuring something like $600 billion in value, which is more than ever before.
3: So we'll have people listening to the show from all around the world, maybe thinking that this sounds unfortunate for the people involved, and that may be interested in the fact that the U.S. has gotten itself into this mess. But why should they care about what's happening in these particular U.S. states?
0: Climate change is increasing risk all over the world. And so that will probably eventually be reflected in people's insurance premiums outside of America as well. The second thing is that insurance and especially reinsurance is a global industry. So, what happens in America is not at all isolated from the rest of the world. Money gets moved from one place to cover losses somewhere else. So, I think more than anything, yes, America's 50 different state insurance markets are quite unique, but it also serves as a warning for the rest of the world for what could be coming.
3: Karen, thanks so much for explaining that. Please hang around because we'll talk to you again at the end of the show.
0: Of course. Happy to.
3: For more on what kind of losses the insurance industry is facing and whether it's climate change that's actually driving it, I wanted to speak to Karen Clark. She's the CEO of the aptly named Karen Clark and Company, which specializes in risk modeling. Karen, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you for having me, Mike.
3: So let's start first by talking about what's happening to the frequency of catastrophic weather-related events. If we say over the past decade, what are the changes in both the frequency and the kind of events that we're seeing?
2: Well, I think when most people talk about the frequency of events, they're really talking about the financial impacts. And what we've been seeing is that losses seem to be going up. We're having more multi-billion dollar losses from all types of catastrophes. And not just catastrophes, different types of weather, such as wildfires, severe convective storms, which include hailstorms and tornadoes. And when we think about increasing losses, increasing property damage. There are really three drivers to those increases. One is demographics. We have people, especially in the U.S., moving to more hazardous areas. And what we're building in these areas are larger properties, more expensive properties. The second impact is cost of construction. So every year, just like general inflation, the cost to build these properties goes up. And then the third impact is, of course, climate change. So there are really three drivers of increasing losses. And only one of those is really impacting the events themselves, the other two drivers are really increasing the losses from those events.
3: That's fascinating. So the the implication is that the sort of insured value here, whether we're talking about the replacement cost or just the amount of insured things, going up is doing a lot of the sort of heavy lifting. If you think of the three elements that you introduced there, the three sort of driving factors, how would you weight them? Which are the most important?
2: Well, over the past few decades, it's certainly been demographics and the cost of construction. Those two dwarf the impacts of climate change that we've seen to date. Now, we have seen some impacts of climate change, and we can talk about that. But the main drivers have been the demographics and the cost of construction. So, Mike, what some people don't understand is that your insurance premium is calculated based on two things. One is the cost to replace your property times the rate. The rate reflects the risk. And so even if the insurance rate is not going up, your insurance premiums as a homeowner or a commercial property owner are likely to be going up over time, just because the cost to repair or replace your property goes up. It's an important thing for people to keep in mind that the cost of home ownership really does include the cost of insuring your property, which the replacement costs do go up year on year.
3: So you mentioned there as well that it's not necessarily the increase of weather events that's driving insurance costs up, but it's actually the fact that People are moving increasingly into these places, but what are KCC's expectations for what will happen in terms of that main weather event question, the the frequency and intensity of these things?
2: We do know as scientists that climate change is impacting particularly the severity of these events. Now, when we look at the scientific consensus, we see that there is high confidence in really three of the atmospheric perils that are being impacted the most by climate change. We know sea level is rising, so we know that's impacting coastal flooding. And with respect to hurricanes, the scientific consensus is, interestingly, that there's no change in frequency, but there is increase in severity. So hurricanes with climate change are becoming more intense with higher maximum wind speeds. The other peril that is being very much impacted by climate change is wildfires. And this is not just in the U.S. We see it in Canada, in Australia, different parts of the world. And there is really no doubt that climate change is impacting both the frequency and the severity of wildfires. So we've already been seeing more intense, more area burned in different areas. And that is likely to continue to increase.
3: How does that affect the insurers and reinsurers? Obviously, these are the sort of people who are your clients using your services, their business, how does this affect that?
2: Well, there's a well-established underwriting adage, which goes, there's no such thing as a bad risk. There's only a bad price. So if you think about the insurance industry, their product is risk protection. Okay, that's what they sell. So in some sense, risk going up is not a bad thing for them, means higher demand for their product. But in order to provide that product, insurers and reinsurers require the most scientifically advanced models and accurate tools that can give them credible estimates of what the price should be. They also have to make sure they don't have too much exposure to one event. No policyholder would want their insurance company to go out of business in a major event. So, one of the jobs of insurers is to spread the risk and diversify. So as long as insurers and reinsurers have the most advanced and accurate models and tools for pricing the risk and monitoring the risk, they should be able to right cover the risk. Now, again, people may not like the fact that prices are rising, and it is a challenge in the U.S. working with regulators. In some key areas, there can be resistance on the part of regulators, believe it or not, even in allowing insurers to use the models to price the risk. California is a great case in point. The regulators have not allowed insurers to use the catastrophe models to price wildfire cover in California. And you can see what's happening, Mike, because insurers then are not writing new business in California because they can't get the right price. Now, you can evaluate the models. For example, Florida for many years has a Florida commission on hurricane loss projection methodology. So they vet the models very extensively we actually think as a modeling company, it's a great idea to vet the models. So if you want adequate insurance protection in your jurisdiction, we really have to allow insurers to charge the correct rate.
3: Karen, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk. Thank you very much for joining us on Money Talks.
2: Well, you're welcome. And thank you for inviting me.
3: So, Tom... I think the most interesting element for me so far is that, from the coverage, you would maybe think that the increased frequency and severity of the weather events very real, was doing the sort of heavy lifting here when it came to the insurance payouts. And obviously, as Karen says, that's part of the calculus. But clearly, the much higher value of the actual insured contracts and the construction costs involved seem to be doing the lion's share of what gives us these headlines about enormous record-breaking damage. And that's even before considering that these are usually in nominal terms rather than real terms and the element of distortions is also really interesting to me i didn't know that there were so many sort of perverse incentives at play and there doesn't seem to be an obvious answer to that in terms of having an insurer of last resort if you build a taxpayer you're encouraging precisely the sort of risky behavior that is causing the problem if you build the insurers well why be an insurer you know you're going to get out of there you're going to get out of any market that makes you behave in that way
4: Agree with that completely. You know, I understand why people want to move to warm places like Florida. And right now, Miami's economy is booming. The problem is that on current projections, Miami is going to be 60% underwater by 2060. And even the parts of the city that are not submerged will become far more prone to tidal surges and flooding. And maybe there'll be engineering solutions to that. I think Miami's already building seawalls and installing flood pumps. But I think the reality is that the city is going to need to start shrinking its population. And it's not just Miami, of course, cities like Shanghai and and Copenhagen and many others face a similar situation. But what they don't have is these types of distortions in, in the pricing of
3: risk. And if only one of the hosts of Money Talks have written a book about cities, if only. (laughs) Before we hear what's coming up after the break, we wanted to remind you that we're launching a new podcast subscription service next month. There's still time to get that great deal for Economist Podcast Plus so that you can continue listening to Money Talks every week. If you're already an Economist subscriber, thank you. And you'll still be able to listen to
4: every episode of your favourite weekly Economist podcast and special series. If
3: you're not, all you'll need to do is go to economist.com slash podcasts plus. That's P-L-U-S. And you'll be able to subscribe for just two dollars, pounds or euros a month. That's half price. For that,
4: you'll get our regular shows and some exciting new ones. That includes Boss Class, a new series on how to navigate the world of work from our popular Bartleby columnist. To sign up to Economist Podcast Plus, just click on the link in the show notes below.
3: After the break, we'll hear from a top executive at one of the world's biggest reinsurers to find out how the impact of climate change and the state of the industry in the US is being felt around the world.
2: Only from rust
3: Before the break, we heard how pricing in the US insurance industry had been allowed to fall completely out of step with the risk reality on the ground. And a world of ever-increasing perils, one of my favourite terms from the world of insurance, isn't just something the US is facing, though we can all take lessons on how that country deals with it. To find out more about how the changing climate is affecting the industry globally, we brought in a reinsurer to give us their perspective. This is where I'll let Tom bring us up to speed on what we need to know about reinsurers before we go any further. Well,
4: as the name suggests, the reinsurance industry provides insurance for the insurers, companies like... State Farm in America or Aviva in Britain will set up an arrangement with these companies who will pay out a sum of money if some specified event occurs. Uh, Mostly that is catastrophic events like natural disasters that involve huge losses. Insurers are generally happy to cover more everyday risks themselves, which means that the premiums of the reinsurance industry represent a little under 10% of all insurance premiums globally. But because they take on these big catastrophic risks, these firms are especially exposed to climate change. And as they become more exposed, they
3: will also need to raise the prices they charge to insurers for protection. So with that spelled out loud and clear, let's hear from Jean-Paul Connocente, who's responsible for property risk at SCORE, one of Europe's big four reinsurers. Jean-Paul, thank you very much for joining
1: us. Glad to be here.
3: So if you look at your business, if you look at the industry in general, what has happened to losses in the last five years or so? How has the picture changed?
1: What we've seen over the past five years is a sudden increase of small to medium-sized losses. In the US, it would be losses that represent 10, 20 billion insured loss. In other territories, it would be something between two to five, 10 billion dollar losses. And so we expect these to occur, but these have occurred, I say, consistently over the past five years and globally. So it's not just a US issue. We've had significant floods in Europe. We've had large typhoon losses in Japan in 17 and 18. We've had wildfires. We've had tornado hail losses. So I think what we see is these types of events occurring really globally unexpectedly. So I think that's been a bit of a surprise to the industry. And the expectation would have been that this type of event happens, but then we will return to a period of normality. And I think, unfortunately, the last five years is, in our view, probably uh, the new normal that we have to adapt to.
3: Given that, how do you view the way climate change in particular is affecting the way you think about these natural catastrophe risks?
1: I think it has a huge effect on how uh, reinsurers look at catastrophe risk. We feel that reinsurers tend to look at the past to try to predict the future. And we're at a stage right now where we think the past is actually not a very good reflection of what the future can hold.
3: And how does that feed through to pricing, especially if you're looking at this from the perspective of, you know, whether you're the homeowner or a business owner, where is this change felt?
1: I think it affects the price of insurance because as reinsurance charge more to insurance companies for their risk insurance companies need to pass on some of that cost back to consumers so I would expect the price of insurance for property that is exposed to natural catastrophes to increase you would also see probably limitations on some of the perils where insurance are less comfortable like flood So I think overall, the general consumer would expect to have a more expensive insurance product and a coverage that is probably not as wide as they used to have. So in the U.S., this is
3: all translated into sort of higher take-up, for example, California's FAIR insurance program, models like that. How does that interact with what your company does? And what's your view of those government assistance programs?
1: The FAIR program in the U.S. is really uh, an insurer of last resort which offers an insurance guaranteed by the state. We tend, as a reinsurer, not to reinsure these government schemes, again, because the type of risk they insure are the ones that are probably underpriced and overexposed.
3: And what do you sort of make of that in general, the the role of state intervention? I mean, if it's underpriced and overexposed, that. Seems like a bad thing.
1: I think it's really uh, linked to the political issue of having everyone wants to live by the ocean or with a nice view of the river or the lake and not necessarily pay the price uh, that's required to live in those exposed areas. And that's where governments intervene, proposing some insurance schemes to help the real estate economy continue and grow. So I, I think it's a reflection of the political cost of growing those areas. I think, again, it has some economic limitations to it over time. And that economic limitation will, I believe, result in additional investment into prevention, which I think is really the key for us to better manage this over the medium term.
3: You mentioned additional prevention there. I'm sort of wondering, from everything that you said, how much you think the industry can sustain Its current model, in the light of the increasing catastrophic events that we're talking about, whether something has to change, do you think that's mostly on the prevention side?
1: I believe so. I I think there's two things that need to occur. One is the realization by the general population of the exposures they're subject to by living where they choose to live. And probably there's more education needed there to better inform everyone. And the second one is, you know, there are simple measures, for example, for wildfire, there's vegetation management, there's certain separations that need to be put in place to reduce the risk of wildfire or floods. You know, there's irrigation systems that need to be put in place. So from an engineering perspective, there are means that can be deployed to reduce the risk. The problem is those means are sometimes costly. And so there needs to be an economic advantage to doing that. And I think as the cost of insurance goes up, that provides a motivation for the investment in prevention. And the
3: problem at the moment is that if you're seeing the increasing reliance on these insurers of last resort, that you're not getting precisely that sort of market reaction, the price mechanism working, and therefore people presumably don't have as much of an incentive to invest in precisely that sort of prevention.
1: Exactly. I think it sort of delays this uh, realization I don't think he's going to be able to stop it completely, but it definitely delays it over time. So you've been in this sort of area for a
3: very long time. How has this changed during your career? And as the CEO of the property side of things at SCORE, how much of your time do you spend thinking about these extreme, unusual changes in the volatility of these events?
1: Natural catastrophes happen all the time, and that's part of our business. What's been surprising is the sustained frequency of these losses over the past five years. It's almost like a chain in regime that we haven't really been able to fully explain. I think as we've been studying the effect of climate change for a long time, we expected this to be gradual and to be something that we experience slowly and would take 10 years, 20 years to really fully observe. The reality is it's been a very sudden change. And it seems to be here to stay. So it's forcing us to adapt our business models and type of business that we write and how we price that risk.
3: Sean Paul, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you. I'm back with
3: Aaron, The Economist's U.S. West Coast correspondent.
0: Very happy to be back.
3: Now, Aaron, I found all of this particularly fascinating, again, as a sort of distant viewer of the industry. I think that the headlines about increasingly large parts of the US, for example, becoming uninsurable, when I see those, my immediate reaction is to think that that's because the risk has risen to some sort of level, which means it's simply no longer possible to ensure these things at all. But it sounds very much like in parts, this is really a political problem. You know, there's some price at which some of this would work, and that's being prevented essentially by regulation and by politics.
0: I think that's right. It really all does come back to politics. And the desire to keep rates low is bipartisan, you know, it's Democrats and Republicans, it's state officials and federal officials. And in some ways, it's really understandable. And, you know, it's inevitable that some people will be priced out of their communities if insurance costs rise to levels that are actuarially sound. And that is going to be super tough. And, policymakers are going to have to work out how to help those people. There's also, I think, this threat of political backlash if politicians do allow insurance firms to raise rates. We're seeing this a bit with a number of states now suing the federal government over rate increases for federal flood insurance. California's insurance commissioner just last week proposed new rules that would allow insurers to factor the cost of reinsurance into premiums and to use forward-looking climate models, which other states already allow. And that's going to raise costs for homeowners.
3: So, Aaron, you're not running for insurance commissioner, but if we just sort of put that hat on for a second, what do you think should happen? How does the U.S. and the worst affected places in the U.S. get out of this mess?
0: I think first and foremost, and California is doing this to their credit, there are ways to reduce risk and that benefits insurance companies and homeowners and the state. So for example, I went to this demonstration in Southern California where a few Orange County firemen set these two little sheds on fire and one had all the hallmarks of a fire safe home. So like no fence or plants or anything flammable right up against the house. And the other shed had a wooden fence and a bunch of shrubs in front. And by the end of the demonstration, that house did not exist anymore. It was absolutely burned to a crisp. The other one was absolutely fine. So California now has a policy where... If homeowners implement these kinds of risk reduction measures for wildfire, they get a discount on their insurance and you could envision something similar for flooding or for windstorms. But those kinds of things can't erase risk entirely. So premiums are going to have to rise. It's going to hurt, but that's the way to accurately reflect risk and to signal to Americans where it's actually safe to live. Otherwise, taxpayers who live in relatively safe places are going to keep subsidizing insurance for those who don't. So the choice is basically either people pay more based on their own risk or the federal government, a.k.a. the taxpayer, foots the bill. And that's not politically sustainable either.
3: So the rest of the world is looking on and with climate change, these much higher costs of construction, etc., it's going to get more expensive For a very large number of us, if not all of us, what are the lessons that can be learned? Is it just that people are going to have to swallow higher prices?
0: One thing that became very clear to me as I was reporting this story was how what's happening with the insurance industry in America is really just a sign or a symptom that parts of the country and the world will become less fit for habitation as the climate that this trend of migration into hazardous places isn't sustainable. And the market can signal what those places are if politicians let it, which I think, hopefully, to end on a more optimistic, less doomsday note, in the long run may keep people out of harm's way.
3: It's always good to end on a slightly more optimistic note on what is overall a very, very depressing subject. Aaron, thank you very much for joining us on Money Talks.
0: Very happy to be here.
3: So, Tom, after everything we've heard, how do you think the insurance industry will adapt to climate change? Or should we say in the case of the US, be allowed to adapt?
4: Well, I guess my hope is that Sense will prevail and eventually the market will be able to start pricing these risks appropriately. Even then, though, I think that will only be a short-term solution when it comes to making many of these exposed areas insurable again. One of the challenges with climate change is the unpredictability of its effects, which is is a fundamental issue for insurers. And so unless you start seeing meaningful efforts at adaptation from seawalls to new technologies for fighting wildfires, a lot of these areas will just keep getting more difficult to insure over the long term. I'm also interested in what all this means for the strategies of insurers. Historically, what's often called the retail end of the insurance market, which provides the types of coverage that you or I would buy, Mike, has not actually been all that sophisticated when it comes to modeling risks. I mean, when I was doing work in the insurance industry, I was shocked to find that the so-called risk models were often just kind of jazzed up Excel spreadsheets. And that was fine in a world where you were looking at fairly stable probabilities of things like Burglaries or house fires and all the catastrophe stuff you could just palm off to a, a reinsurer. But I'm not sure that's really going to cut it anymore, partly because reinsurance will probably get more expensive, but also partly because I think the ability to price these risks well is going to become an increasingly important source of competitive advantage for those companies that can get it right. And in recent years, many retail insurers have been really focused on automation and making their services more digital, but I suspect their attention might start to shift in the years ahead.
3: Oh, that was a wounding dry fire attack on jazzed-up Excel models, which I'm personally a big fan of, though I don't provide you know huge insurance contracts to people, so maybe it's fine for me. The thing that I think really fascinates me about all of this is you have these two systems moving independently of each other the first is basically thinking of an insurer as a basic financial services company you want to offer prices that are low enough to be competitive and high enough that when push comes to shove you're able to pay out what you owe to your policyholders and that system has enough problems we saw with a company like AIG in 2008 that the insurance sector is certainly not immune to the same sort of potential for financial distress that you might get with a bank or another financial firm so that itself requires requires all sorts of assumptions about pricing, the risk involved, the same things you make in any other business that deals with financial markets. And then there's this complicated second moving part in this case essentially the weather and potential catastrophe conditions you're put in a position where you're highly dependent on some amount of reliability on that front your ability to predict what's coming down the pipe or at least the range of things that might come down the pipe and from jean paul there it's quite clear that the ability to do that is being muddied by climate change in a way that can upend the industry i don't really envy the fact that These guys don't just have to look at financial markets and say, how can I model this? You're having to look at the physical world too. So you've got this extra layer, which means an extra set of things that can go badly wrong. And it's interesting how much these two things resemble each other, the markets and the climate. Again, during 2008, we learned all about tail risk and how it can destroy a business. They're working on the presumption that this certain set of extreme events happens, say, once in a million years, and it turns out, ah, no, it's once every 20 years. That's a real problem.
4: And the problem, of course, is that just as in financial markets, pricing those tail risks is just incredibly hard.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't think honestly, we're all that much better at it than we were 15 years ago, if you look at the industry as a whole. And to cap all of this off, there's another element that really reminds me of 2008 in a different way. And it's the dynamics that there are with housing policy. I know I'm not running for office. But can you think of anything more stupid than just letting people move into a sort of tinderbox or a floodplain or a hurricane exposed coastline, which you know, okay, it's a free country. You're not going to stop these people from moving there. But not only doing that, but saying, by the way, we're going to give you some state backed insurance. So don't worry, some chump who decided to live in a safe area is going to cover your risk. So again, I guess. We've got a crisis that is in no small part down to extremely unwise political decisions based around the housing market. With that sunny note, it's probably time to move on to our stats of the week. Tom, what do you have for us?
4: Mike, my stat of the week is 148, which is the number of days that Hollywood's writers were on strike for. So that strike ended this week after the writers agreed a new three-year contract with studios. As is often the case with these things, everyone declares themselves the winner, but it does look like the writers have secured a lot of what they were hoping for, including a bigger slice of streaming revenues and new guidelines on the use of AI. Unfortunately, the actors haven't ended their strike yet, though, so it might still be a while before we start seeing new seasons of our favorite shows coming out again. Though I do wonder whether the actors or the studios or both might be feeling the pressure to cave now.
3: Well, fingers crossed, because while I want the things I watch on Netflix to be written well, I don't actually want to see the writers on the screen. I'd rather see the actors. And my stat of the week is 35%, or I suppose it's minus 35%. This figure comes from the International Energy Agency, which has updated its net zero emissions by 2050 scenario. Basically, this is a path that's designed to make sure there's no more than one and a half degrees Celsius of global warming going forward. The minus 35% refers to the reduction in fossil fuel emissions required by 2030. To make that work, 2030, of course, being seven years away now, uh, is very, very close. And that is, yeah, quite a lot of emission reduction. I thought that was relatively fitting given our subject matter today. Better get started
4: on building those sea walls then, I suppose.
3: <laughs> and on that bleak note, I would like to thank Karen Clark and Jean-Paul Connescente for joining us on the podcast today. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to subscribe to
4: Economist Podcasts Plus. There's more info in the show notes, along with the link to sign up
3: for that special offer. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howe. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. And this is The Economist.